Good afternoon. I am proud to be able to stand here before you today and say, in just a few months, I'm going to be 50 years old. Now, why am I sharing this with you? Because there are countless people from where I come from that can't say that. Choices made, life decisions, situations and circumstances have cut many a life short and lessened opportunities for a lot of people with whom I used to stand shoulder to shoulder. They may or may not have ever wanted to stand on a stage in front of you, but certainly to be on the stage of life with experiences behind them and a story in front of them, well, that would seem to be a generally accepted goal for anyone. So today, I am glad to be able to share my story with you and hopefully share some insight into what these almost 50 years have taught me. So first things first, I am a black man. I know, don't be shocked. I know you can tell by looking at me, and more than likely, for those of you who are just listening, you can tell from the sound of my voice. Why do I open with this? Because to understand anything that is to follow, that's a fact that you have to acknowledge. The fact that I'm a black man adds perspective to every word I'm about to say. It helps define my positionality and my epistemology. It may help you understand my psychology and why I use certain terminology. And although I will offer no apologies, I'm hoping you'll understand the history of my geography and how it affects the pedagogy I'm using with you today. So let's begin. I've enjoyed a diverse education. I've been to private and public schools, schools in the inner city, schools in white suburbia. I went to a school in a small town where the principal was also the mayor. He and my mom went to school together and she never liked him. She didn't vote for him and she shared her disdain for everything about him at every opportunity she could. I even attended a performing arts high school and I wasn't interested in acting or any other type of performing art. Three years later, because high school used to start in 10th grade, armed with a subpar GPA, an excellent SAT score, and because of this little policy known as affirmative action, I left high school with a high school diploma and admission to this school in Northern California called UC Berkeley. The year was 1988. My admission to UC Berkeley was conditional on my successful completion of a summer bridge program. It was described as a summer enrichment program to help prepare incoming freshmen for the rigors of university life. Let me preface my next statement with this. I had a blast. A few of my closest friends today, well, I met them in Summer Bridge. I don't regret the experience or the opportunity, but it was not enrichment. It was a gladiator academy. There were no counselors, no encouragement, no guidance. It was just summer school. They put 150 of us in this program, crammed us into a crumbling dorm dormitory, and everyone, save two of them, were black, brown, or some other hue that met the qualifications for admission under affirmative action. The other two were male and white. I recall the intro session like it was yesterday. The presenter, the presenter said, look to your left and look to your right. One of these people would not be here after freshman year. Look again one more time. By the time you graduate, if you graduate, you might not see the other person either. Welcome to college life. Welcome to UC Berkeley. The person speaking was a white man and I never saw him again, but each of us left that room swearing that we would ultimately get that degree. The truth, he was right. I don't know the exact number, but many of the students in that room didn't make it to freshman year, let alone through it. And more than half never received a degree from UC Berkeley, which is a startling difference from the 80% graduation that's claimed by the university for that time period. Could you imagine bringing home a newborn baby and putting him in the crib with a diaper and on a bottle and then checking on him four years later? Well, that was my college experience. We as a group were brought in, given no structure or encouragement, 
Some would call that we were set up to fail and we were sent home just as quickly as we arrived. For those of us that made it through, it was all sweat and tears. The saddest part is that today, over 30 years later, not much has changed in colleges across the country. Black and brown students are still falling out of the system, failing to make it to their junior year, let alone graduate from four-year universities, oftentimes due to loans and family situations, ending up in worse off conditions than if they had never attended college at all. Something needs to be done about that. Obviously, this situation is going to be different for all students. For context, I'm focusing on students from low-income, single-parent households with desires of attending a four-year university. Students such as myself, who saw college as the only way to improve their quality of life. Students who would be the first in their family to make that transition. Did you know that according to the Public Policy Institute in California, a family of four with an income of $44,000 is considered low income? Students from these households have to depend on loans if they apply, grants and scholarships if they qualify, and their ability to earn additional money to assist with financing of their education. On the contrary, students with at least one parent with a college degree generally have a higher degree of support in-house, wherein the resources are there to help with financing and make college acts life more accessible. Additionally, according to statistics from the U.S. Census, the presence of a college degree more than doubles the median income of a household than one without the presence of a college degree. Something to think about. If we're going to be honest, these lack of supports are not the result of the design of a school system. Not the design, but the designers. And the policies and practices in place with the creation, development, and progression of this country. The development of this country, admittedly with valid and driven personal intent on behalf of the Founding Fathers, was at the core based on a desire to expand a developed and prospering European culture into another territory. This was not a hostile takeover in the sense of overpowering a formidable foe, but by bringing language to a culture, to a land that did not have one, in their opinion, it was a takeover nonetheless. I'm not defending the mindsets of the Founding Fathers, but in taking a step back to look at their goals and their chosen means to accomplish them, I get it. I see what they were trying to do. But who are they or anyone else to make the decision that their culture is the superior one? And what choice did they offer to the original people to accept or deny this change? Try this on for size. This initial intersectionality of culture versus culture has set the tone for every push against or push down of every other culture that has had the misfortune of coming up against, taking a stand with purposeful aggression or passive compliance against a pervasive European culture that became the United States of America. Think about this quote from Collins. The term intersectionality references the critical insight that race, class, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, nation, ability, and age operate not as unitary, musically exclusive entities, but as reciprocally constructing phenomena that in turn shape complex social inequalities. It's not that I'm white, nor that I'm male, nor that I have privilege, nor any of these other those other qualities. It's that, that I am all of those things and more, and that shapes who I am and my positionality over you. Now, if this is the basis what education, from which education was developed, it's no wonder that those who weren't included originally were victimized as part of the process. Assimilation equals confirmation, and anything else is unacceptable. You need more of a connection? Let's look at the 13th Amendment. 
enacted by Congress in December 1865, subsequently marking the end of slavery. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime, wherein the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction, except as a punishment for a crime. Now, this was enforced by military, military order in the South until armed forces pulled out in 1877, in the Compromise of 1877. This began an 88-year period wherein the South, countless black people were silenced, imprisoned, or killed simply for the color of their skin. This filled the jails with pr and prisons with people of color who, by law, could be enslaved or forced into involuntary servitude. Today, 55 years later, although illegal because of the Civil Rights Bill passed in 1965, similar conditions still exist. The intersectionality of white men and anyone who is different still occurs with similar rationale and outcome that existed during the time of our founding fathers. You need more? How about the three strikes law? This law was signed by President William Jefferson Clinton in 1994 to combat habitual offenders. It was part of the Justice Department's anti-violence strategy. The law significantly increases the prison sentences of offenders who have a violent felony and two other felonies on their record. Recipients of the third strike get mandatory life sentences, some deservedly so. Aggressive crimes like murder, aggravated assault, rape, anything that harms a child, etc., should be treated with the maximum degree of severity allowed. But nonviolent crimes? I'm not so sure. On the surface, the three strikes law, the three strikes law provides a severe enough punishment to provide a deterrent to those who would choose to break the law feloniously. Dig a little deeper and we find that there is no deterrent and prisons are getting more and more crowded. Of the over 200,000 convicted felons serving life sentences, just under 10% are for nonviolent crimes. That's almost 20,000 people serving life sentences for committing uh, nonviolent crimes. On the inside, there's no separation of inmates based on crime, for the most part, which means that drug offenders are in the same boat, so to speak, with murderers, rapists, and every other aggressive criminal. For those that would eventually be released, are they in a position to get better or get worse? Think about that. Furthermore, it begs the question as to whether prisons are for rehabilitation or punishment. I'd argue both. But if that's true, then what measures are in place to allow for an individual to reenter society successfully? A felony on your record stops you from voting, stops you from receiving public assistance, including housing. It limits educational opportunities due to not qualifying for federal loans and grants. Job opportunities become limited. Let's face it, with a felony on your record, if we're gonna be honest, criminal activity becomes a viable option because as long as you don't get caught again, then you can actually earn a decent living. Now that's not acceptable, so something needs to be done to change it. When you are from quote unquote an urban area, finding a way out can be a challenge. If you have the misfortune of being caught up in the system, finding a way out becomes the least of your worries. You also have to worry about finding a way to get back on. And there has to be a better way to deal with nonviolent crimes and criminals rather than sending them to prison. Which leads me to the third point, the school to prison pipeline. Discipline percentages in the state of California for non-white children are in the double digits in the majority of school districts across the state. In the majority of these cases, students are removed from the classroom as a measure that is much punitive for the student as it is convenient for the teacher. Either way, the student is left out of the learning environment. Now, is this good for the student or are we just sacrificing the one for the sake of the many? Walk with me on this. Student gets disruptive, so they're sent to the hallway. 
Student gets disruptive, so they're sent to the office. Student gets disruptive, so they're sent home. Now the student's at home, but there's no parent at home to stay with them. Student was at home, but now the student's in the streets. Student gets involved in something they shouldn't be involved in, and they get picked up by the police. Now the student's in the system. I could keep going, but you get the picture. I realize that I'm painting a grim view of the worst case scenario, but this worst case scenario is happening in the streets of, of urban areas every single day. We're supposed to be educating students, but because many schools lack the personnel, the ability, and the patience to deal with them, we're in fact creating a path for them to be funneled directly down a road that we should be educating them to avoid. Furthermore, by removing them from school, they are oftentimes pushed directly into the environment where we are supposed to be providing them protection. I'm not suggesting that all of the students in these cases are without fault either. In many of the cases, these students are doing everything they can to be removed from school because they simply don't want to be there. And they think they're willing to deal with the consequences. But are they? Is making a choice a viable excuse when you lack the mental capacity to make that choice? What I'm saying is, again, we need to find a better way to deal with these, situ these situations. So where do we go from here? Is this a situation with a problem of finances? School funding, at least in public school, is tied to neighborhood budgets and taxes. Simply put, more affluent areas and neighborhoods are funded at higher rates by the state. The federal government gets involved, but as of 2018, federal funding for public schools, at least in California, accounts for about 9% of school budgets. Any more, and the federal government wants to take over. No Child Left Behind was replaced with the Every Student Succeeds Act, but the accountability requirements within make it ineffective in a number of areas. State dollars account for 58% of public school funding, and it may not be practical to increase that percentage, but perhaps, just perhaps, we should take a long look at what that funding is based on. The current strategy for LCAP and LCFF funding is based upon the minimum level of support required to educate the student. Now, as an employer, do you expect a minimum level of effort from your employee? Do you choose a doctor with a minimum level of experience? Why is it okay to fund our students' education based upon a minimum level necessary? And who chooses that number? Why does a student in New York receive almost three times the funding as a student in California? It seems that there are way more questions than answers. So allow me to wrap up with this. You hear all the time that our educational system is broken. People point out the vast differences in educational quality in urban areas and how uh, black and brown children are held to a different standard in and outside of the classroom than their white counterparts. And yes, all of that is true. We have data from across the state that shows disproportionate disciplinary measures and outcomes affecting urban families. But is it broken or is it operating as it was intended? And are black and brown children the byproduct of a system that never included them in the first place? Many, including myself, would say yes. And if I had a magic wand, I would stop the entire system. I would go back and write the vicious cycles of injustice that this country is founded upon, allow time to catch back up to itself and see what happens and give it a fair shot. But that's a fantasy and fantasies aren't based on the truth. The truth is there's no full-fledged correct answer to make the system better, but there are some ideas that need more research, more development, more time to test and implement. 
College preparation goes a lot farther than academic preparation. Students need access to programs that offer mentoring and insight into university life. Families could benefit from career training, savings matching, and investment opportunities to prepare for a future that includes a student in college. Most important, for students that have a desire to attend a four-year university, this process needs to begin early, as early as possible, because preparation takes time. It's not something done in a weekend, it's not boot camp, it's definitely not summer bridge, and there is no magic wand involved. Thank you.